0: Our sermon text today comes from Numbers 14. We're going to be looking at most of the chapter today. Uh, But as we have been recently exploring the letter to the Hebrews uh, in in our normal uh, series, we're soon going to be entering a section that assumes that the listener knows about people and events that happened much earlier in the story of redemption, in particular know about Moses and a day of rebellion uh, that happened in the wilderness. And so today, as we look at Numbers 14, we're going to be looking back at that day to better understand both the dangerous nature of unbelief and why the writer to the Hebrews is bringing it up, as well as understand the generous grace of God that has been revealed in Jesus. And so today, we're going to listen to Numbers 14, as I said, which is Israel's response to the report of the spies who were sent into the promised land that God had promised to Israel. Twelve men were sent into the land to check it out, to see if it was good or bad, to spy out the cities and the peoples of that place. After 40 days, they came back and they reported to the people We came to the land to which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And they show all of Israel a single cluster of grapes that it took two men to carry. I mean, I just don't even have a category for that. But then, ten of the spies say this there is a problem. The people in the land are strong. Their cities are fortified and huge. We felt like grasshoppers next to them. And those giant people thought that we were grasshoppers. That land, we aren't able to go up against it. Only two of the spies, only Joshua and Caleb, believed that they could. And now in Numbers 14, we hear the response of the people. And this is the hinge point for the book of Numbers. They have been preparing, Israel has been preparing to enter the promised land for over a year since they left Mount Sinai with Yahweh leading them in a pillar of cloud and fire. Now they are poised to finally enter the land that God promised to Abraham so long ago. And it's here that their unbelief turns into full-scale rebellion against Yahweh. So listen as we read the word of the Lord. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out, it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against Yahweh, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord, Yahweh, is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said, To stone them with stones. But the glory of Yahweh appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to Yahweh, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, Yahweh, are in the midst of this people, for you, Yahweh, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man then the nations who have heard your fame will say it is because Yahweh was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in this wilderness And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised saying Yahweh is slow to anger an abounding and abounding in steadfast love forgiving iniquity and transgression that he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please, pardon the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then Yahweh said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it, but my servant Caleb, Because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of your number listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell. Except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones... Whom you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, You shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, Yahweh, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before Yahweh. Of those men who went out to spy the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. This is the word of the Lord. Unbelief is complex. And unbelief is the simplest thing in the world. It literally means a lack of faith and trust. If, as one writer has put it, faith is in essence the certainty that God will fulfill what he has spoken, then unbelief, of course, is the exact opposite. It is calling into question the trustworthiness of God, as well as the truthfulness of his word, of his promises. And unbelief like that is what we see in Israel here today. For you and me today, standing outside of this story, it would be the easiest thing in the world to judge Israel and say, How foolish, how forgetful can you get? Why would they doubt God after everything that they've seen with their own eyes? But we have to remember, the pastor who wrote Hebrews, who refers to this very story, says to us today, to you today, you stand in the same place as them. God has already demonstrated His love and his power, accomplishing an incredible rescue through Jesus. How are you going to respond today? Like the people, will an unbelieving forgetfulness dull your mind and harden your heart? Or will your confidence in God endure? Will you continue to follow the Lord even when things are hard? Even when redemption doesn't look like you expect it to look? And so to help us better understand our hearts, we're going to consider the nature of unbelief as we see it in Numbers 14. And we're also going to consider the nature of belief. What it looks like. What do they look like in the real world? Let's... Let's start with the unbelieving response of Israel. We're going to consider three ways that their unbelief shows itself, reveals itself. First, they listened to their fears instead of their God. They listened to their fears instead of their God. Second, they tested Yahweh by complaining against Him. They tested Him by complaining against Him. And third ultimately they prefer an alternate an alternate god to god himself they prefer an alternative to god over god himself and so first let's consider that their unbelief made them listen to their fears instead of their god remember at this point in the story yahweh has already led them out of egypt out of slavery He's already defeated the chariots of Egypt at the Red Sea, sending the world's most technologically advanced military to the bottom of the sea in a single moment. He's fed Israel bread from heaven. He's provided water in the wilderness as he led them toward the land he had promised over and over and over again to give them. And even so, in verse 3 we hear from their lips this belief that God was only leading them there to fall by the sword of the strong peoples in their land. As if the Redeemer, their Redeemer, won't finish what He starts. Faced with strong foes, they're afraid that Yahweh won't be able to protect their wives and their little ones from becoming prey, they say literally Means plunder or the spoils of war. And so they act out of fear, not believing that the one with them is greater than the people who are in the land. That acting out of fear is where we must examine ourselves. What is it that guides your choices in life? The actions that you take in your daily life? Is it a robust confidence in the promises of God? Or do you often find yourself controlled by fear? Do you act out of fear, grasping for control of your family or your work? Are you constantly afraid of what might happen to you or your family in the future? Now obviously wisdom teaches us to be ready for trouble and hardships in this life. Jesus and all the apostles tell us that through much tribulation we will enter the kingdom of heaven. But we don't have to fear the trials that the Lord lays in our path. And to live in such fear is a form of unbelief. Now the second way Israel shows its unbelief is that they test Yahweh by complaining against him. You'll notice in verse 2 that they grumble against Moses and Aaron. But Yahweh in verse 27 says the grumbling was really against him. One writer points out the reason for this grumbling. Israel was looking at Yahweh not as deliverer and gracious king... But they were looking at him as a bringer of death and suffering. Which is why they would rather go back to slavery in Egypt. From verse 22, we understand that Yahweh takes their grumbling refusal to enter the land as Israel putting Yahweh himself to the test. And while it is proper for God to test man, man should never test God. Because testing him implies his faithfulness is questionable and therefore needs to be proved. By complaining against the Lord, Israel ignores all the powerful signs done in Egypt that Yahweh has done up to that very day. In spite of every way, God has shown his faithfulness rescuing them from centuries of slavery, destroying their enemies, giving himself to them. In spite of all of this, Israel doesn't believe that God is good. Actually, in verse 22, we're told that this is the tenth time that the people have tested the Lord. But this is the tenth time that they themselves are the ones who are shown to be lacking. Here and now, there are so many things that are deeply wrong with our lives, that are deeply wrong in this world. But when we look at them through the lens of unbelief, we assume that those wrong things exist because God can't be trusted to do something about them. Such a view of the world misses this vital fact. God has already done something about the deep wrong in our lives and in this world. He sent his son into the world to suffer and die precisely because he cares enough to do something. And so for us today, we have to examine uh, our hearts, uh, examine not just our complaints about the world, but also the, du- the direction of our complaints. Because it is true that God has not yet finished what He's begun. So, so much in me and in this world still needs to be put right. But when you are confronted with the wrongness of things, do you complain to God or about God? What is the direction of your complaint? Because he is big enough to hear your cries. And he invites you to call on his name and wait with patient hope. He gave us the Psalms of, the, of Lament to teach us how to do that. And he shows us in Jesus... He shows us Jesus in the Gospels, righting the wrongs of this world to comfort us and to assure us and to give us hope that He is doing something. But if if you look at your life and your circumstances in this world and you complain that God isn't doing anything about them, then you have to recognize that such, such unbelief ignores the proof that God has already given of His trustworthiness. And if we put him to the test like that, we should only expect that we ourselves will be shown to be lacking. Third, the unbelief of the people is seen because they are not merely complaining like they've done before. That they're tired and hungry. Now they're complaining that Yahweh is their God. Think about this. In Exodus 19, soon after rescuing them, God called them to be His special people, to serve Him as priestly kings. But here in Numbers 14, in verses 3 and 4, their preference is for safety and meat to eat. And so Israel is rejecting both its calling and, more fundamentally, rejecting its king. We see their unbelief most clearly in verse 4, in their desire to appoint a new leader to return them to their pre-redemption state in Israel. The, the craziness of this should shock us. Standing on the edge of enjoying life together with God in the Promised Land, they'd rather be slaves in Egypt Than to live serving Yahweh. They'd rather die in Egypt. Than to live in the land with Yahweh. We can't miss this today. Because this preference for anything other than Yahweh. Is always at the heart of unbelief. And while we may not be so blatant in our rejection of the Lord. We can be tempted just like them. To prefer other things then we can be tempted to prefer other things to fulfilling His calling on our lives. A calling that, as His people, means we must be willing to take up our crosses each day to follow Him. Maybe for you, the the temptation is to prefer wealth or comfort or pleasure or the affirmation of others. But... But personalize this. If if I turn away from the Lord and His love and His power and His goodness in the hope that something else is better, something else would satisfy me more, that something else will make my life the way I feel it's supposed to be, to, supposed to be then I am essentially saying that I'd rather have some other God than God. I'm essentially saying that I don't believe Him To be as trustworthy as he claims to be. It's like this. My my friend Scott was a good husband. Not a perfect husband, but a good one. Scott gave his wife time and attention. He told her that he loved her. And then he proved it. Over and over again, through quality time and gifts to her and date nights, through physical affection and emotional intimacy. He would work from time to time. This was a running project of his for a while in his little basement workshop. He was handcrafting a bed for the two of them to enjoy in their coming years of marriage, a token of the deep love that he had for her. Scott was faithful. He was consistent. He apologized sincerely when he messed up. And he actively worked on being a better husband for his wife. On a regular basis, my wife appreciates this, uh, on a regular basis, he washed dishes without even being asked. That's kind of a big deal. One day he told his wife, I love you. She said, I don't believe you. And she moved out, leaving Scott for another man. And even though he pursued her over the coming months, she never came back. I love you, he said, in word and in deed. I don't believe you, she said, in word and in deed. That's what we see in Israel here. God has shown them his love and his faithfulness in word and deed. And here they say to his face in word and deed, I don't believe you. And when they make their final decision, they're about to stone Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb to death, sealing their unbelief with outright rebellion, Yahweh shows up. And from him we learn the consequences of persistent Stubborn unbelief. In verse 11, Yahweh said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. One commentator recognizes the significance of this pronouncement of divine justice as God is ready to hammer the people of Israel into nothingness over this unbelief. It's more than just his willingness to destroy. He says such destruction would set the timetable for fulfillment of Yahweh's promises back to the time of Abraham. This threat shows the seriousness with which God takes rebellion on the part of those who claim to be his people. Now, some people have seen this story as proof of the harshness of the Old Testament God. But I would suggest to you that what becomes clear in this passage is that God is not the harsh one, God is not the offending party here. Israel is. What Yahweh declared then would have been justice, pure and right. God had made promises of faithfulness to Israel, similar to our marriage vows today. And Israel had agreed to be faithful to Yahweh. But in their actions, flowing from unbelieving hearts, Israel had broken their wedding vows and announced their intention to be an unfaithful wife, returning to their old lover, Egypt. I think in any society, a full divorce would have been justified. And it is to this point that the author of Hebrews carries us. He returns to this story to show us the radical danger of persistent unbelief. He wants his friends to whom he writes. He wants us to continue on believing the Lord. And in Numbers 14, we begin to see something of what that looks like. If unbelief listens to fear instead of God, if unbelief is typified by complaints against the Lord, if it's typified by preferring an alternative to God over God himself, then we see what belief looks like. In Moses and Joshua and Caleb. In them, we see how, first, belief rests on the promises of God. Belief embraces the power of God. And third, belief relies on the character of God. I wish we had more time, but let's consider these briefly. First, Belief rests in the promises of God. You hear it as Joshua and Caleb urge their brothers to believe the promises of God to bring them into the land. In verse 9 they say, Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. What you hear is Joshua and Caleb going back in the story, hearing and believing all the times that Yahweh had promised he would drive out the peoples of Israel. He would drive out the peoples that Israel now feared. Whereas the unbelieving spies had earlier said that the land would devour them. Joshua and Caleb have faith that God has made the people of Canaan bread for Israel to eat. They would walk in. They could walk into the land and collect it. Pick it up just as easily as they collected the manna that God provided for them every day. Sure, there was work to be done, but the Lord would be with them. What is it that God has promised to you? He has not promised you a life of comfort or ease, but He has promised to be with you. He has promised grace and strength for whatever He has called you to endure. Whatever situation you're in, whatever circumstances that you face right now, however daunting they may be, however fear may try to claim your heart and lead you into unbelief, God has promised that He will be with you and He will be enough for you to sustain you. Cling to that promise. God has not promised that you would escape from the hardships of this life, but He has promised To treat you like his own son, Jesus. With the assurance of a place in his kingdom as you rely on him. Cling to that promise. So first, belief rests in the promises of God. Second, belief embraces the power of God. Again in verse 9, Joshua and Caleb say, Their protection is removed from them. And Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. Just as God had demonstrated His power against Egypt, Joshua and Caleb expect God to demonstrate His superior strength against the peoples in the land. They might be giants, but Yahweh is bigger still. And if He is with them, who can stand against them? It's true, here and now, that you and I are weak. Weak. But God does not. And although we are opposed by the world, the devil, and our own flesh, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Even when our own hearts condemn us, the Word says that God is greater than our hearts. Can anything now separate us from his love that is toward us in Christ? Cling to him. He is strong when you are not. And he is for you. (coughs) Finally, belief relies on the character of God. Righteous and terrible consequences are about to fall on Israel because of their rebellion. But listen to Moses in verse 17. As Moses, too, rests in the promises of God and embraces God's power, he connects it all to the character of God. Listen to this, starting in verse 17. And now, he prays, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Just as you have forgiven this people from Israel uh, from Egypt until now. As Moses, as the mediator of the covenant, the one who stands between God and his people, as he intercedes for the people, he returns, not to what the people deserve, he returns to what he knows about God. Indeed, he repeats back to God what God revealed about himself to Moses a year earlier on Mount Sinai. Moses appeals not only to God's justice, but also to his steadfast covenant-making, covenant-keeping love. Moses has come to know and trust God, and so he pleads that the glory of the Lord, His greatness, would be known in all the earth. And he pleads for the pardon of sinners as to, to be an expression of His greatness. And so Yahweh mixes mercy and justice together. As he always does for the sake of his own glory and his covenant promises. In verse 20, he pardons the sin of the people. But he does also promise that none of those who had seen his power and glory and yet tested him in unbelief would enter the land of rest. Out of all the adults, those aged 20 and upward, who had earlier in the book been registered as the fighting army of Israel, none of them, except for Caleb and Joshua, would see the land. And although they would suffer 40 years of wandering because of their parents' unbelief and rebellion, the children of the Exodus, who the parents feared would be prey for the people of Canaan, the children would be led by Yahweh himself into the land to be their home. And so, once again, it's here to this point That the pastor who wrote Hebrews brings us, holding in front of us the danger of unbelief and the blessedness of belief in the Lord. Here he asks, once again, how are you going to respond today? Today, will you believe or not? Because the basic reality is this. We all struggle with unbelief. Christians and non-Christians alike. It's hard to believe God when we're confronted with fear and uncertainty and whatever giants may be in front of us. But to continue on in stubborn unbelief when God has spoken so clearly in his son Jesus and proven his faithfulness to redeem this broken world, to continue on in unbelief is a fearful thing. To continue in unbelief in the face of the resurrection of Jesus, the greatest sign ever given to men of God's power and commitment to restore all things, to continue in unbelief is to not only reject the blessings of Christ, but to reject Christ the King Himself. And so for us today, what is it that keeps us from drifting away from full confidence in this God? How can we today express a faith like Moses and Joshua and Caleb, confident in the Lord's character and power and promises? What is it that keeps us from listening to our fears over God? What keeps us from complaining against Him when life isn't going how we want it? How is it that we come to prefer this God to all the other saviors that the world offers to us? I would put to you that for the author of Hebrews, the answer is profoundly simple. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus who stands like a better Moses, interceding for his people. Look at Jesus, who instead of merely falling on his face at the people's rebellion like Aaron does, Jesus is a better priest and he does something about his people's great sin. Look at Jesus, who heard God's command to go, not into a land of peace and rest, but to a place of suffering and death, to the cross itself. There he was forsaken, so that you would not fail to enter the good land that God has prepared for His people. Look at Jesus, who took upon Himself the full burden of God's justice against sin. Jesus is the one who, was, who had the iniquity visited upon His own head, so that pardon could come to people like you and me who struggle with unbelief. Look at Jesus, he says, and in him see the promises of God fulfilled, see the power of God on display, see the character of God fully revealed. Look at Jesus. Because his gospel tells us that even when we were dead in the wilderness of unbelief and rebellion, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace In kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. And so for us today to embrace Him by faith. Whether for the first time or the millionth time. To embrace Him today is the way that you and I press on. And we conquer. To repent of the ways that we've functioned out of unbelieving fear. While rejoicing that in Jesus we rebels have forgiveness by His blood. This is the way that we walk in faith. To pursue new obedience in light of God's promises and power and character. This is how we demonstrate God's greatness in our lives. To cling to Jesus for however long God keeps us in the wilderness of this life. Until he is pleased to bring us safely to our true home with him, to cling to Jesus, this is the life that is pleasing to God.